I thank the Lord for His grace. If I think about my life, where would I have been? I grew up a young man and I thought I had everything in life. Uh, I was bulletproof, as they say always, the young people. Sometimes I think about the things I did as a young man and I think, Lord, that I'm alive. Still alive is grace. I jumped off a truck one night on a motorway. There was no cars. It was one in the morning. But jumped off a, a truck. And some nights I wake up cold sweat and I go, you know what could have happened? And what would have happened? I could have hit my head, lie there unconscious, and a car could have come down that motorway and just struck me. Or I could have bumped my... Anything happens. But you know what? It did not happen by the grace of God. But if you think that's bad, it's even worse if you think about it, that if that had happened at that time, I was going to be condemned for hell eternal. Because at that time I wasn't saved. I was just studying. It was my first year. Everything was going. I just met my now wife. Everything was going in life. But if, I, if my life was ended that night, friend, I would have been lost eternal. Forever. How wonderful is God's grace. Amen? Do you love God's grace? The fact that you are sitting here today is by God's grace. Right, we want to continue this morning with the study in Revelation, and we are looking at the churches of Revelation, seven churches, and it's wonderful. I've learned a lot again these few weeks out of this passage and out of this Revelation and, and the letter of our Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. We come today to the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia, and this is also known as the faithful church, the faithful church. And this is the only one of two, one was Smyrna and the other one is this church, that there is no condemnation for the people in this church. And we will see that as we're going to continue now and look through and study through the passage. So first of all, let's read the whole message that the Lord has for this church. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy and he who is true. Even just those two words right there can keep you busy for a long time. The one who is holy and true, that's the title. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commandment to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Listen, friend, there's a test coming for this earth. It's written right there in your Bible. These people don't know what's going to hit them. 
I feel sorry for the world today. Because there is a test coming for them. And the only way that you can pass that test is if you are in Christ Jesus. No other way. They're talking about perseverance and they're talking about getting ready and they're talking about all of these nonsense. But the only way that you can pass this test is in Christ Jesus. There ain't no other way. Verse 11 says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have you got ears this morning? Hear what the Spirit says to you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And even, Lord, if we close your Bibles now and go home, I thank you, Lord, that the Bible says your word will not go out and come back void, but it will accomplish every single thing that it's been purposed for. I thank you for your word this morning. And Father, in this church, we want to stand on your word and your word alone by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. So, Father, as I preach through this passage, I pray, Lord, that you touch my heart, my mind. Give me a calm spirit, Lord, to give your message to the people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia means the laugh of brethren, or also brotherly laugh. And you know, friend, this is an important mark an important mark for every Christian is the love of God. Every church should have the love of God. And when we look at this church and we think about its name, brotherly love, it is so important that we all have them. I mean, Paul writes to Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, But concerning brotherly love, we are dealing with a church of brotherly love. He says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So who teaches you to love? God. The scripture says it right there. For you are taught by God to love. Then it amazes me that I find Christian, children of God, who cannot operate in love. Then I, I think by myself, if I read this passage... Who are teaching them? If it says here in this verse, and if Paul is true what he's saying, which I believe he is, because all Scripture is inspired by God, if he writes down this to Thessalonians, he says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love. If you do not operate in love, who is teaching you then? It's not God then. The Bible says God is love. He's agape. He's not trying to be love. And if he is love, the only one who can teach you love is him. So what happens when you accept the Lord into your heart? Love comes into your heart. It's so amazing. He also writes to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says, now hope does not disappoint. I love that. Because the love of God, the love of God, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Who pours the love into your heart? The Holy Spirit. So again, if we want to talk about love, and I see Christians and people who call themselves children of God, if they do not operate in love, then I can just make an assumption according to the Word of God that they haven't had the Holy Spirit poured into their hearts. You see, it's not just everybody who comes into a church and sits under the banner of Christianity that you can see as a child of God. No, no, you have to come to the cross and you have to bow the knee to the cross and you have to confess your sin. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and it's poured out into your heart. And what comes with that? The love of God. And this is the true mark of a child of God. A true mark. But don't take my word for it. See what, it, what John writes. He says in John 13, 34, And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's not a choice. It's a command. Can you see that? So many people make it a choice. They say, oh, I can't love that person. Well, it's your choice then. You don't know what they've done to me. I don't know and I don't want to know, but I know one thing. If you call yourself a child of God, a Christian, if you call yourself blood-washed by the blood of the Lamb, look, you've got no other issue then. You have to walk by the commandment of God, and that is to love one another. Amen? There ain't no other way. And then if we look at the Scripture verse, he says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love. Where's the, where's the teaching starting with a commandment? It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. People are saying these days that love is an emotion. It's not an emotion. It is a decision you make to love and to hate. And he goes on to say that he says, As I have loved you, John chapter 13, 34, As I have loved you, as Jesus Christ has loved us, at the cross. And that's the same kind of love that He now pours into your heart through the Holy Spirit and we are taught by God. What kind of love is that? It is a sacrificial love. The definition for love is to benefit others at the expense of self. Jesus Christ died on the cross. For whose benefit? For ours. And this is what He says there. He says now, at this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, that you also love one another. Now, look at this now. Verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. By what? By coming to church every Sunday? By giving out alms? By having a smile? By being seeker-sensitive? No, no, no. He says, by this the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how the people will know. So we're talking about Philadelphia. The city there, and there was a church in that city. And the city's name is associated with brotherly love. And I want to suggest that the love of God was in this place also as we're going to see, as we're going to continue. So let's look at our map. Again, this is a very strategic city. If you look on the map there, it is just south of Sardis, which we looked at last week, the dead church. You remember that? Ikabot, kaput, peh. I don't know what language I can say it anymore, but dead means dead. 
and now we find Philadelphia. But if you look the strategic way that it is located, Smyrna is that port city which then makes this junction there. And we, we said last week, Cyrus is important because this would be the mail route down from Pecanum down to Laodicea. Philadelphia was one of those as well which was sitting on that junction there. This was also a port city, Ephesus. And there was also trade going through there past Philadelphia. Now, as we've read this morning, you saw that there is a door associated with this church. You remember? He says, who opens and no one can shut. How wonderful is it then that if there's a trade route going into Asia Minor, how wonderful is it that the gospel could also go through into the rest of the world through this door? Very strategic city. It was the youngest of the seven cities, this city. It wasn't as old as the other ones. And I want to make a point about that. But this church for me is a very significant church. I said it already that there's no condemnation against this church, but it's very significant in the fact that there's a door open for them, an effective door into the rest of Asia. Now it reminded me of the scripture verse as I prepared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. If you think about all of these other places, they're the big cities like Percanum, the three big ones, Ephesus, Smyrna, Percamos, and then Tithara. If you think about all those, this is the youngest of all of them. It is then true that sometimes these big cities can say, you know, those guys doesn't mean a lot. They're the youngest. They're not as significant as us. Look at them. But look, friend, there's a scripture verse which I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writes this, he says, for you see your calling. Listen, we are talking to a church who's got an effective door into Asia. They, they surely do have a calling. And wait a minute, we're going to apply it to ourselves as well. Every church should have a calling to preach the gospel. Now listen to me, he says, for you see your calling, brothers, that not many wise men according to the flesh are called. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised and the things which are not in order to bring to nothing things that are so that no flesh should glory in His presence. I find it absolutely amazing that out of all of those churches so far that we've looked, these big cities, that the one city that he that is no condemnation for, which he comes to them and says there's an open door, is the youngest of them all. And you know what I tie it down to? It ties it down to that last word that he says there, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in his presence. These days I see a lot of glory going on in the presence of the Lord. People want to take everything for themselves. You know, it's all about me and it's all about what we can achieve. Oh, we are this mighty Jesus. Who are you? You small little group down there. You little group there in Philadelphia. You, 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 you must know where you stand in the standing, in the ranking. You are there. You are, you are the weakest. But it doesn't work that way. So that no flesh should glory in the presence of God. 
I think it's important to know that. This city was founded by King Atalus Philadelphus of Pergamus. He founded this city. And he loved his brother so much that he named the city in honor of his brother. This is where this brotherly love comes from. And let me just correct it, you know, friends. I've heard uh, recent years that they say this has got to do with the gay movement. It's a lot of nonsense. It's a lie out of the pit of hell. Brotherly love in the church of God is agape love. It's sacrificial love. So he, he loved his brother, and then when the city was named, he named it in honor of his brother. In 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed this city, and not only that city, it also destroyed the city right north of it, Sardis. Totally, a massive earthquake happened there, and everybody thought that was going to be the end of this young city. But the Caesar, Tiberius, came and he rebuilt the city. He gave them money and he put a lot of effort into that. And for a short time they changed the name to give him honor for the city. But you see the thing is, why would he come and do that? Because this was also known as Little Athens. You know Athens, that Roman city where there, uh, as Paul said, as he walked through that, there was all of these statues and statues to gods, and then he came to one which says is the unknown God. This was also called the Little Athens because of the many statues that was all around the city and shrines and temples for gods. One of the most notable temples in this city was the temple of Bacchus. You know who Bacchus is? Bacchus is the Roman god of wine. He was copied from the Greek god Dionysus. And these days I can see the spirit of Bacchus so much in our society. Alcohol is associated to Bacchus. I'm ashamed to say that even in the church now they say, you know, they call them sipping saints. It is okay, but you know, that is associated to this God. And, and he apparently came and he then came around to the vineyards and he taught the winemakers how to make wine. It was about drinking and it was about the spirit that went on in the day and then it was also about theater. Everything is make-believe. And I'll tell you one thing. Friend, we can go through the Bible and I can read you passages of people who is under the spirit of Bacchus, who is intoxicated through wine and drink. And there's so many pages in the Bible who says that they fall over and they wake up in the morning and they have wounds without cause. This is what Proverbs say. All associated to this. Now all of this is the environment where this little church was in. So... What title then did Jesus choose for himself to describe him? Let's have a look. In verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, who is the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. Now the question is, why would he choose this title? Why would Jesus come and say to them that he is the holy one? He's the true one, and he is the one who's got the key of David. You've got to ask the question. And it's right there in front of us. Because in that place was unholy people. He says it right there in one of the verses. He says, there was the synagogue of Satan. And what is Satan? He's the Antichrist. Satan is instead of Christ. And this is who was there. So those were unholy people. 
And because there's unholy people in that city and the church is right there, he tells them, he says, we understand, I understand that there's holy people. There's the synagogue of Satan right there. He says, I come to you as the holy one. And secondly, we know that there were people who were liars, weren't they? They were those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Let me ask you the question, today in our world, do we have the synagogue of Satan? Of course we do. We have a synagogue of Satan in our day and age. Unholy people. Do you know un unholy people? I can think of a few just quickly off, off, on the top of my mind. Are we living in a society where there's liars? Where people proclaim to be Christian but are not? Come on, tell me. See, we're in the same situation. And to those people in Philadelphia, he says, he comes who is holy and who is true. These are liars, but I'm coming to you as the true one. And to you and me today, he says the same thing. They were there people who wanted to destroy the church. Why would he say, I will make them come and worship before your feet, close the door, they wanted to close the door for the gospel. And it's to them that he says, I've got the keys of David, and I open up doors, and I close doors. He, he gives this church there in the middle of Philadelphia, in the middle of all of these things, he gives them assurance. He says, look, I'm coming to you as holy, true, and I've got the key of David. That's why he chooses that title. But it's really interesting, friends, that when we look at this title, it is the only title out of all of these churches where it is not going back to Revelation chapter 1 and use one of the descriptions in Revelation chapter 1. Have you noticed? All of the other churches, if you read Revelation chapter 1, when he talks to them about these circumstances, he chooses one of those descriptions. But not this church. No. He says to them, he is holy. Look, he's not trying to be holy. We are serving a holy God. Do you understand? Do you realize what, what I'm saying? We are serving a holy God. He says, he is holy that is the Greek word for he's morally perfect, he's pure, and he's blameless. And then he says he is true. Now, there's absolutely truth in our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. You can trust him 100%. If you read the Bible, everything that he says is so. There's no bone of lying in him. There's nothing. He's the true one. In fact, there's three volumes of truth that the Bible talks about. In uh, uh, The first volume of truth is the Word. It says in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them, by your, your, sanctify, them, sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth. If you want to start studying that volume of the Word, you will, it will encapsulate your whole life. The second volume of truth is the Son. Him, Jesus Christ, is a volume of truth. In John 14, verse 6, what does he say? He says, I am the way, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The third volume of truth is the Spirit. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, the Spirit is truth. So here to them, in that circumstances, he says, He who is holy and he who is true, he is coming. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. In these circumstances. Now what does the title mean then? He says to them that he holds the key 
of David. And he opens, and no one shut, and he closed, and no one opened. This refers back to Isaiah. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, you remember in, in Isaiah chapter 9, he says, A son is born unto us, and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. This is just after that in verse 7, he says, And of the increase of his government, this talks about Jesus Christ, <coughs> and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. The order of it is established with the judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. That's a mighty roar. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let's speak the word and let God speak through nature. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform. Now what happened in this passage, if you read right through that, the city was besieged and the people went to the rooftops and have a party. That's where you find that passage that says, tonight we drink for tomorrow we die. And the people there didn't trust on God. But look at Isaiah chapter 22 verse 22. He says, the key of the house of David I lay on, lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. So what's happening here? In the days of King Hezekiah, when they besieged the city, there were walls around the city. But there was one man with the key. His name was Shepna. You could say he was like the chief of staff in today's terms. But he had the key, and, and he used that key for dishonest gain. And now the Lord came to him in Isaiah, and he prophesied over him. He said that because of that, the key will be taken away from that, that unworthy servant, and it will be placed on Elihakim who was a priest and an honest man. And that was a prophecy towards Jesus Christ, who is the holy and the true one. And this is the title that he uses to talk to this church. And Jesus is saying in this that his will is absolutely true and cannot be changed. You see, you get two kinds of wills of God, only two. One is a decretive will of God, where he decrees something and nobody can change that. That's when he made the heavens and the earth. He decreed it. He spoke it into existence. and Nobody can come against that. And the second one is the preceptive word of God. A will of God. The preceptive will of God is, a, is, is, is connected to the moral standards of the word of God. So you and I are living in both of those wills. The one we can do nothing about, but the other one we can live according to the will of God. And here he comes to them and he says, look, if I have opened up a door, what is that? That is the decretive will of God. He will bring out a decree. He says, I will open this door for that church and nobody can shut it. That's God's will and it will stand fast. Now let me just excite you this morning. I know that you and I are living in this world. And we've got our jobs. And there's so many things that change us around us. There's things that we have no control over. Tomorrow morning you will wake up and the world will be different. We can't change that. And then people fret. You know, they, they become anxious. They go, oh, what will happen with my life tomorrow or the day after? I don't even know if I'm going to have a job. And it's true. I mean, we all go through that. In my own company, you know, I said it a few times to a few of you, you know, I don't know what's going on, what's going to happen then and there, you know. It's just things that you sit down as a child of God and everybody says, have faith, have faith. And we do have faith. We do. 
But you know, we all, we're just human beings. That's all we are. And, and somebody can come to you and give you scripture upon scripture and they can put their arm around you, but this uncertainty is just sitting inside of you. Have you experienced that? I have. But you know, when I look at passages like this, this gives me something extra to hold on to. If I understand the will of God, that if I am His child, and He says that He's caught me in the palm of His hands, and that He will look after me as a father look after His children. I've got three children, and I'll tell you what. Now, I've got more children now. <laughs> my, my, my boys are married and so on. So, I've got more children now. Now, the thing is, dear friends, as a father... As a dad of my children, I want to look at every, I want to give them the best. I want to look after them. How much more is our Heavenly Father? Now this is the exciting thing. When I look at this church, and when I think about what He's telling them, and He comes to this point, then I say, Lord, this means then that. If you have made a decision about my life, it stands doesn't matter what the world says. Are you with me now? Hopefully this brings some comfort to you. That if, if God has put out a decree over your life, and look, I'm not into the word of faith movement nonsense which is going on. I'm not going on and saying, look, I've got a personal prophecy over your life. This is the word of God. This is the essence of the will of God. If God says in your life, for a job that you have, that's the open door. Then not even your boss will be able to shut that door. Are you with me now? This is what I get out of this church. I told you before there's a threefold application. There's a personal application. When I read this, I prayed again to God. I say, thank you, Lord, that I'm in your hands. Thank you that I don't have to go into a panic attack about what happens. But look, tomorrow I might wake up and, and for a few seconds there I might forget about all of that I've said and prayed and so on. And I get into this anxious moment. You know what I can say? I can just relax and say, Father, I'm in your hands. And if you have said the door is open, it's open. But listen to this as well. If he says the door is closed, don't you go with your shoulder and try to budge it open. You see, I've seen this happen so many times. People come to me and they say, oh, will you please pray for this? And they tell me the story. And in the story they are telling me, I can understand that God has already given them the answer and the answer is no. But they come to me to try to change the answer from no to yes. And I'm not God. And so many times I say, look, I, I'm honestly going to tell you what the Bible says. It's no. And then they get mad at me. <laughs> God's will stand. If God says it's so, it's so. But God also knows what to do. And He knows what's best for you. So keep on, hold on to that. The keys of the house of David is in His hands. And you know what I know? The king is coming back again. And he's going to come back and set up his kingdom in the place, in the seed of David, in Jerusalem. We continue in verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. 
for you have a little strength, I've kept my word and have not denied. Two things I want to bring out of this. First of all is, what is this door? He talks about an open door. An open door is an opportunity. In the New Testament, an open door speaks of the opportunity for ministry. That's what it is. Oh, I've heard over time so many sermons and so many of these faith people coming and they put so many emphasis on this door and this door means to them a lot of things and I want to say it's all nonsense it's fluff, it's popcorn it's got no substance the only substance that this door gives them and the only meaning for this door is for effective ministry to preach the gospel nothing else and, and I want to invite you if you find anything else that this door can open please come to me and, and, you know, give the scripture verses and convince me it's so. In Acts chapter 14 verse 27, we find some proof here. He says, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. What is the door of faith? Other than the gospel. So he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I haven't got Jewish blood in me. You know what? I thank the Lord that he opened up the door of faith for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 9, he says, For a great, this is Paul writing, he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me. What was Paul? He was an evangelist. I know he was an apostle, but he went around the world and evangelized. What did he preach? I'll tell you what he preached. He preached Christ crucified. That's it. He says it to the church in Corinthians. He said, I could have come to you. I could have used all my university degrees and talked to you about all of these things in a high language and you wouldn't have understood it. Let, let me just throw it in here. The gospel should be so simple children can understand it. That's an effective door. So he preached it to them. He says, this door is open to me. He could have done any of those things. He could have told them beautiful stories. Look, there was a lot of philosophers in those days. He could have given them stories. But he kept to one thing. What is that? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the same Paul writes to them again. He says, furthermore, in verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, what happened? And a door was opened to me by the Lord. You remember the Macedonian call he got? That's a door. So uh, the second thing which I want to just stand on a few, few moments is, he says you have, you have a little strength. Now it doesn't mean that they were weak. This points towards the Holy Spirit. But they were small in numbers. It didn't mean that they were strong in the spirit, but they were small in numbers. Remember, it is the youngest city, and it was a small church, I presume, and they had a little strength that they held on to. But the second thing I want to talk to is, you've kept my word. And look, friend, I can talk about this part for hours. The word there, the Greek word for word, is the word logos, the written word of God. He says, you have kept my word. This is the written word of God. You have kept my word. And again, I come back to Paul. What did Paul say? 
He didn't open up and tell them a story. And this is what I see these days. You know, it really, really gets me worked up. I listen to sermons and people open up the Bible and they read one verse, close the Bible, and then they tell a story. That's it. No, don't come and tell me they are keeping the Word of God. No. I've, I've seen a video clip this week of somebody preaching a whole sermon and there's not even a Bible on the pulpit. And they were telling philosophies and stories. This is where we're living in, friend. This is our day we're living in. It's the same as these people. And you know what they will preach? Vision. Vision. This is our vision. Our vision is to impact people. Our vision is to release the power of God. How in the world are you going to release the power of God? Tell me. Yes, you know, the power of God is in the Word of God. So if you step away from the Word of God, you know what they're going to do? They've got all of these funny things going on. Honestly. It is serious, my friend. They are living, we are living in the days of Philadelphia as well, where there's a small group who holds on to the Word of God. And, and this is the other thing that I've noticed. Remember when I said that Paul is preaching the cross? Every single message that any pastor preaches needs to come back to Jesus Christ. Not God. Everybody says God. Even the Muslim says God. You can listen to the Muslims. Oh, God, God, God. I know he's God and I respect God. And you know there's Hebrew names in that God. And you know he's my father. But I come to him through the name of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. I can't go to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Every single message that any pastor, any Sunday preaches needs to come back to the cross. Let it be known. These people kept the word. Why do you think he comes to them and then comforts them with the words of holy and true? Those things, holiness, you find it in the word. You come to me and you say, prove to me that God is holy. Go to the word. You say to me, prove to me that God is true. Go to the word. That's it. But this is what I hear. These days, sermon after sermon after sermon is humanistic sermons. It's all about me. It's what I need to possess. It's what I need to get. It's who am I in Christ. I know these scriptures who says that who am I in Christ. I know it's there. It's written in the Bible. But then I need to put it into context. You know what I'm in Christ? I'm a sinner saved by grace. And He's doing the work in me. To completion. To do what? To do His work. And like I say, I can continue on and on about this. But this is fascinating to know that he recognized in this church that they have kept his word and has not denied his name. <coughs> in Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 he says, Indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to you know that I have loved you. But because you have kept my command... To persevere, I will also keep you from the trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's three promises here that I want to touch on. The first promise is that He will take care of your enemies. Isn't that wonderful? 
Isn't that wonderful? There's a scripture verse that comes up in my mind. And look, I, I, I'm just going to give it to you. It might be for somebody here. You know that we as Christians, and again I say we live in this world. There are so many times something happens and I feel, man, I need to get my word in. I need to fight for myself. Have you been there? Somebody says something or something reaches your ear which is not true. What is the first thing you want to do? I know myself. Look, I'm not standing here and show, pointing fingers to you. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. I'm feeling ashamed how I, I've, I've addressed a few things in my life before. But you see, something comes to your ear and the first thing you're on the computer, you want to write that letter. I'm going to tell him. I'm, I'm absolutely going to tell him what is the truth here. Or you're on the phone to that person. I'm going to tell you. Let me give you a piece of my mind. But you know what? The Lord always say, wait. Wait. Pray. Have faith in Him. Why? Because He acts on your behalf. You say, where do you get that? Let me show you. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. That's why I love to have the Bible with you all the time. Because the Holy Spirit just gives you a scripture verse and you can read it out of the Word. It's not sucked out of my thumb, Andre. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. Look, listen to this now. He says... Uh, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. Listen to this now. Who acts for those who waits for Him. Isn't it wonderful? He acts for those who waits for Him. Look, in, and if the Lord wants you to move quickly and fast, He, he will tell you to move quickly and fast but wait upon Him. And here we find the same thing with the church. You see, He gives them the promise. He tells them, He says uh, that He will act on the, He will take care of the en enemies. He says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. But let me just put in a qualification here. It is because they were Christians that they had enemies. Remember this? It's not because of your attitude. You see, a lot of people have got bad attitudes and they get persecuted for their attitudes and now they say, oh, it's because I'm a Christian that I've been persecuted. No, no, no. It's because what you've done, your actions has got uh, 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 complications. So don't you go and do things which upset people and when they react, you go, oh, it's because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. These people have got enemies because they are Christians. Children of God. And you and I have these enemies as well. So, he says it there. He says, he will take care of the enemies. He will make them come and worship before your feet. Look at Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14. He says, also the sons of those who afflict you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You see, if God acts on behalf of you, if only you wait for Him, then it doesn't matter what problem you're going through. You and I can only see us in the mirror. We can only see what's in front of us. We don't know what's beyond. But God knows. 
And you can have this onslaught of people coming against you because you're a child of God, because you're a Christian, because you stand on your testimony. <coughs> and I know, you know, we're living in a time where I see this, that Christians wants to become militant to protect it for the faith. No, no. We trust on God. We have faith in Him. In the New Testament, you say, but that's Old Testament. What about today? Well, New Testament in Philippians 2.9, he says the same thing. He says, therefore God also has highly exalted Him. Who's Him? Jesus Christ. And given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Listen, I read in the Bible, every knee shall bow. That includes everyone in this place. It includes everyone you're working for. It includes everyone in the government. It includes everyone everywhere that their knees will bow. You see, here we go, and, and people want to persecute you because you're a Christian, and you stand for, for the Word of God, and, and you stand on the Word like this church. Here we all stand like this, and, and we fret, but he says, look, every knee is going to bow, and they're going to, they're going to admit that we were right. And that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the glory of God the Father. That's the first promise he gives this church. Hold on to the word of God. Second promise, he says he will keep them from tribulation. Listen to this. And, and it's so clear. Look, I, I don't have to bend any scriptures or try to influence your mind or try to change your mindset. It's just written in the word. And we need to read it in context. He says that I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Listen, friend, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. This world don't know what's coming for it. The signs are there. And all they say, oh, conspiracy theorist. Oh, it's a conspiracy theorist. Fake news, that's the latest thing, yeah, for conspiracy theorists. And that's all they say. But they fast asleep. There is an hour of trial coming. And he says, which shall come upon the whole earth. It's not only for Australia. It's not only for New Zealand. It's not only for America. It's not only for Iraq. And if you think, if you listen, if you think whether what's going on in Iraq now or with ISIS what's going on there, if you think that's the hour of trial, you've got a thing coming. As we're going to continue through the Revelation and as we're going to go into chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, you're going to see things which if, if the world, if we go into the world and advertise this, they'll go, that guy's off his blockers, man. He's crazy, but it's coming. Now, this is the promise. He says to them, I will keep you from that tribulation. To this church who holds on to the word. This points towards the rapture. Now, I said to you before, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I cannot see that if I've got children and I know there's a danger coming in a certain place, that I'm going to leave them there to go through the danger. I'm going to remove them from the danger. And wait, at the end of the sermon, when we come to the, to the sixth parable, you're going to see an amazing thing just now. Just hang on to your seat. Don't fall asleep on me now. Which I think find hard to fall asleep with the word. Amen. So he's going to keep them away from this hour of trial. Why? Because these people held on to the word 
They had little strength, but they held on to the word and to his name. And now the third promise he gives them, he will honor them. He will honor them. In verse 12 he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Pillars were built for people who helped the city. Now, do you remember when I said at the beginning that, that there was a massive earthquake in 17 AD that hit that city? So the, the Caesar came in and they rebuilt the city. And you know what they did? They erected a pillar. And they wrote the Caesar's name on the pillar. Caesar Tiberius. And there were other people, famous people in the city. And for each one of these people, they would raise a pillar. Isn't it amazing then that he tells these people, who went through earthquake most probably, who hold on to the word, he says, look, these people are honoring their famous with pillars in the city. Guess what I'm going to do to you if you hold on? Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to honor you. And how am I going to honor you? You're going to be a pillar, listen to this, not on an earth which can be shaken again and thrown over. You're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. How wonderful is that? Have you, have you noticed that? Have you read it like that? He's going to honor them. That's the third promise he gives them. Now hurry on and then let's finish with verse 11. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Now when he says coming quickly, I know that there's a lot of people over the years came to me and said, Ah, you come on, you know what? Paul said he's going to come quickly. Here, John writes down the revelation, he's going to come quickly. And here we're sitting in 2017, he ain't coming. You see, they don't understand the word of God. You know what it means when he says he's coming quickly? It means that when it's going to start happening, my friend, it is the, the sequence of things happening so fast, you won't hold track to it. Let, let me ask you this. Ten years ago, and now, can you all track with the movements in the world right now? No, it's all over us, man. There are many things happening even while we're sitting here. There are so many moving parts in this world, you can't, you can't hold track of that. But when this comes, it's going to happen quickly and fast. So don't wait till that time because you might be out of time when it happens. Today, when the time is right, today, come and make right with God. Now, he says it there, hold fast what you have that no one might take your crown. Crown is, an, is, is a reward. Let no one come and take your reward. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write him, uh, I will write on him, that, look, three things, three names. I will write on him the name of my God. He's going to set you up as a pillar, and he'll write on you the name of his God, and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and when he comes down from him and he says, I will also write on him my new name. That is Jesus' new name. This points to Revelation chapter 19. When he's coming back again, it says on him was written the word of God, but there's another name which we don't even know yet. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have ears here this morning? This wasn't only written for them, it's written for us. Now that is the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia. Have you taken a few things out today about that church? But wait, there's more. Because I find it fascinating when we look at the parable now in Matthew 13, the sixth parable. Matthew 13, 45. And we're going to compare this parable now with the sixth church in Philadelphia. Keep in mind now what we've said. This is the youngest of all of these cities. They, ha they had a little strength. They kept the word and the name of Jesus. 
there in that place was also what? The synagogue of Satan. They were telling lies and they tried to stop this church from preaching the gospel. But Jesus said he's given them an open door and we know now that that's the will of God. Nobody can come against it. With that in mind, read this now. He said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the parable. Now I've heard people preach this and they say, we are the one who's selling everything because we found the pearl is Jesus Christ and we found him and we sell everything to, to hold on to that pearl. But that's not what the scripture says. You see, friend, pearls is interesting, isn't it? Where do you find pearls? In an oyster. You know that? So it forms as an irritation. The oyster is lying at the seabed and a little grain of sand goes into the oyster. And it's not as if the oyster has got hands that goes in there and pulls this little thing out. No, no. The oyster can't do anything. It's got to trust on the waves and the movement of water trying to wash out that grain of sand. But guess what? It doesn't happen. So for the oyster then to get rid of the sand, it's starting to put layers over that little sand pebble. And what forms? A beautiful pearl. That's how pearls are formed. It starts with an irritation. And then it becomes a pearl. Layer and layer upon it. So is the church for the Jews. We are today, the church, this church for the Jews is an irritation. I'm not talking about the Messianic Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord. I'm talking about the Jewish nation. Man, let me tell you this. I've got friends, and it's happened a few years ago. They went to Israel to evangelize, to preach the gospel. Guess what happened? He was thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, for preaching Jesus Christ. And before you sit there and you say, oh, you're against the Jews, mate, that's dangerous territory. I'm not. I'm not a replacement theorist. I believe God's got a plan for His nation, the, the Jews. And I will not curse them because the Bible says, cursed are they who curse them. I will bless them. I'll pray for them. But let's look at our passage. <coughs> the church is seen as an irritation by the Jews. And the oyster is seen as an unclean thing by the Jews as well. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 8. He says, and the pig, we know that Jews don't eat pigs, do we? Pork. He says, the pig because it's parts, the hoof, but does not chew, the chud is unclean for you, their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Now if you want to live under the law, that's fine, you can live under the law, but if you're not under the law, that's a different message. But let me get to the part now. He says in verse 9, of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. What is that? It's fish. It's fish. If it's got, has the oyster got a scale? No. Has it got fins? No. And whatever do not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So here's the picture, friend. An oyster. Why would... Why would Jesus give this parable of the kingdom and then he talks an unclean thing? The oyster and the pearl. 
The pearl is in the oyster. They go together. It's because I reckon he's giving us a sense of what is the spirit of the church in the future and today. We are sitting in the same thing. The world is an oyster. Have you heard that before? <laughs> We're in the oyster. But we are the pearl of great value. The church is the pearl of great value. And this is the amazing thing you remember. You remember in Philadelphia when he said, I will take you out of the trial. Did you remember that? See what happens. See what happens, friends. When a pearl is removed, what is happening? It's removed from its environment. It's removed from outside of the uncleanness. Jews won't even touch it because it's unclean. But inside, he removes out the pearl out of the uncleanness. This is what's going to happen to the church. The pearl of great value, listen to me, is you and me. It's the saints, it's the children of God. And this is what's going to happen according to the word of God. When that hour of trial is going to come, if you are a blood-washed child of God, if you are washed by the blood and you are, you are saved by His grace, He will remove you like a pearl of great value. And you see what he did? He went and he sold everything, everything for the pearl. We did the communion this morning. That's how he sold everything for the pearl of great value. Sixth parable, the sixth church. You remember last week when we talked about the treasure? The treasure represented Israel. Here we come to the other one. And remember when we said last week, you talked about Sardis, the dead church? Here we find now the one, which is the life church. Now, I'll finish with these words, going quickly through the churches. Ephesus lost their first love. Do you think the word of God was preached in that church? No, because we compared the first love to the sower in Matthew. And what did the church lose? The word of God. The seed was gone. Then we skip past Smyrma, who is the martyr church, but then we go on to the compromising church. Remember? Tithira, the uh, Pekamas, the compromising church. What do you compromise? The Word of God. And then we came to the corrupt church. What do you compromise? The Word of God. Then we came to the dead church. In the dead church, the Word of God's not even there. What is the only thing that can bring ba life back to church? The Word of God through the Holy Spirit. So how does that apply to your life today? Hearing this today, I hope you found some comfort that he is the one who's got the whole world in his hands. And if his will went out about your life, nobody can touch it. But the one whom I serve will promote me. And I serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, I've said so many things this morning, but I pray that your Holy Spirit will make these words that I've said become in your hearts, Lord, acceptable, not for your own will, Father, but to for the blessing of, of your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray for every single person in this place, Lord. This is not by chance that we come together. Father, I do believe that you direct footsteps and appointed times, Father, and today we had to hear this. So I thank you for this lesson out of the Church of Philadelphia. I thank you, Lord, that we, if we hold on to the word, life comes with it. And Father, I want to pray for this church and for other churches who hold on to the word. Yes, Lord, sometimes it might feel that we have little strength, but Father, thank you that you are in that strength. And thank you that you gave us your word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Father, that's what we want to stand on and walk on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.